Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number one in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, February the 7th. First, I'll be interviewing Tadagat Banerjee, founder and CEO of Video Translator AI, a tech startup and powerful AI-powered platform able to translate video content into 60-plus languages and more than 120 dialects with impressive speed and accuracy. Not only does the technology perform language transcriptions, but it also generates speech translations, hence the company name, which are disarmingly convincing. And then I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the outlook for the Australian economy in 2020. But now, let's talk to Tadagat Banerjee. Thanks, Tad. Now, uh, Tad, um, tell us about Video Translator AI. How does it work? Um, so, Video Translator AI is, as the name suggests, it's a real-time AI video translator. In a sense, it does transcription, translation, and dubbing for audio and video content. And at the moment, we support 60 languages and between 120 and 150 dialects. In, in terms of the product, it's a fairly new product. It's been out since May this year. Uh, we're a pretty new startup. We've picked up some pretty solid clients in the health sca- healthcare space, which is really good. Outside healthcare, we think it'll be quite useful in sort of tourism and exporters, but also uh, education, sort of your distance education, adult literacy gland, you know, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, that kind of space. As to how it works... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's in effect a three-step process. You, it's a SaaS app, so you upload a video into the app. You use a, an artificial intelligence to transcribe the content, so you get the captions. Once you have the captions, you can use a second artificial intelligence to translate the captions. Uh, and then you use a third one to speak out the captions in the target language. In a technical, in, in technical terms, step one is a speech to text transcription AI. Step two is a text to text translation AI. And step three is a text to speech transcription AI. So we're going the other way. Does that sort of make sense? So you've got it uh, verbally and you also have it in text. Is that right? Yes. So we're using, in the first step, we extract the words and we get the text. We then translate the text. And once we have the translated text, we can uh, speak it out. It's a synthetic dubbing, essentially, in the target language. So uh, so you've got uh, your clients, are p- people like New South Wales Health. Is that right? Yeah, so primarily our clients are in healthcare, but um, I had a chat with the guys in New South Wales Health, and they were happy for me to talk about some of the experiences, but that's that's why we mentioned that, yep. And so how have they used it? So what they're trying to do, and I'll give you a little bit of context around it, uh, they have a lot of video content that they're putting out in social media. So this is YouTube, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Video content is good for a number of reasons, mostly because you can get a lot more information across. But, you know, just generally video is getting very large, especially online video. Uh, I'll give you the exact thing that they were trying to do as an example. They have uh, occupational therapists within New South Wales Health who work with young mums whose kids have developmental difficulties. Essentially, one of the first videos we did for them was children who had motor function development difficulties and the video was aimed at young mums to give them some exercises now once you have that that's really useful but that doesn't help you reach a much larger audience uh, within new south wales health they call it the cal languages right cultural and linguistic diversity and it's sort of the big languages in the greater sydney catchment area i guess the question is when you have lots of people from overseas most of these people do speak English, but probably not at a business level, not the level you and I are speaking. How do you get good ideas and support to those folks? If you can get it in their language, it makes a huge difference in terms of the more complex ideas. So what they're doing is they give us the video, we trans- transcribe it, we translate it, and then we get it to speak out in the target language. Uh, then you take that sound and you overlay it onto the original. So you get essentially a synthetic dub video. The big win from their point of view is, uh, but is actually in search because uh, assume a video on YouTube, in effect, we're cloning it and sticking uh, a synthetic voice overlay on it, right? If you also translate the title and metadata, the description, it gets, it allows it to be indexed in, uh, different languages, and therefore it can be searched in different languages. So think uh, I do for Chinese or neighbor for Korean. So so it's sort of a, does that, does that make sense? Uh, the, it does. The big it does. Is- so did you develop the technology yourself for this? 
yes and no. We're using off-the-shelf sort of bulletproof AIs. So because it's a three-step process, step one and three are essentially uh, Google's AIs. And step two is Microsoft Cognitive Services. We also do some stuff with uh, IBM Watson. So our, our primary win here is chaining a set of artificial intelligences together and also a bunch of natural language programming that sort of cleans it up and makes it more uh, more useful. Uh, we also have a language dialect uh, mapping, a one-to-many mapping. So that's how we get accuracy up and things like that. The fact that you're using uh, Watson, IBM, and, um, uh, and Google AI means it's quite solid, isn't it? 100%. So the actual AIs, we, we obviously spent some time in the beginning benchmarking them to try and work out what is good, what is bad. And the long and short of it is because of YouTube, Google's AI hub for both the speech-to-text transcription and the text-to-speech dubbing, the synthetic uh, speak out, is, is kind of where it's at. Uh, Microsoft Cognitive Services allows you to do a lot more. The, um, the underlying tech is it's more specific than Google AI Hub, so you can play with it in interesting ways. You can create lists of dictionaries and things like that. So that's why we use it in the middle. Tell me, are there, are there some broader ethical challenges around AI? Uh, look, I think, I think they are. Uh, and I think it's a very valid cause for concern in the community, right? Like it's a very legitimate set of concerns. Uh, so it is very valid. One of the reasons... Uh, I spoke about this Vietnamese one, and, and I wanted to share this, is to give you a concrete example of where AI did something that was a bit off. So the folks at New South Wales Health, one of the things they did was during the user discovery period, and because this is, from their point of view, a new technology, they wanted to work out, is this good, bad, ugly? So they had their own internal staff look at it, and uh, the idea is also have a subset of external Vietnamese users listen to it, right? And and what they ended up finding was that there was a lot of resist, resistance about the dialect we used. Uh, so there were concerns that, you know, the dialect we'd used was sort of a North Vietnamese dialect in terms of how it sounded, whereas a number of the, the people who were listening were South Vietnamese. Uh, to give you an example of why this is important, a lot of the Vietnamese community in Sydney originally came over after the conflict in Vietnam, right? So there, a lot of them are from the south, uh, the north one. And, you know, there's not a lot of, it was a pretty messy conflict. So there's a little bit of very legitimate, I think, concerns and bad memories. And th- there is pain there. So it's very, very legit. The reason we ended up with the North Vietnamese dialect is because the underlying AI was built with Vietnamese government content. Right, because you need the content to build the AI, and most of it is North Vietnamese sort of um, dialect. Does does that make sense? Yes. So that's that's an example of an ethical concern in that both for us and for our client in this case, this was something that we never really considered. Right. So there is, I think, a very valid concern in the community, and I think that makes sense. But then, like everything else, they're often quite specific. And being aware that this sort of stuff happens and having your focus groups, just thinking through what you're trying to do often gets you around many of these challenges without, um, you know, the, the, the considerations are not nearly as dramatic as is often portrayed in the media is, is sort of where, where I would come from. 
So I mean, the key thing with the, the AI is um, not about sort of imposing any sort of ethical issues on it, but because uh, AI really has no idea of uh, how it's going. But uh, the thing about AI is it knows how to find patterns. It does. So it's AI, we, you have to remember, before it was sort of rebranded into AI, it was originally big data and big compute, right? So it's pattern discovery and recognition at scale. Now, whether or not those patterns are valid is a human judgment. It could be complete gibberish, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So, so, the, so, so that's something I'd really like to be clear about, that it is very much a tool that allows you to do things. And like with any other tool, you can use it or you can abuse it. And I think the community has a right and legitimate concern. But uh, often the, the instances, without getting into the some of the more hyperbolic statements made, the instances of where this happened is actually very legitimate stuff and you can uh, get around it by just thinking it through and being a little bit empathetic. Tat, that's fascinating and uh, we're wishing you all the best. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Chief Economist, Alex Joyner. Alex Joyner, since we've last spoken, we've had the bushfires and we've had the coronavirus and both going to have an impact on the economy, uh, bushfires in terms of tourism and uh, infrastructure and the uh, coronavirus, obviously, in terms of various industries. There's talk of it wiping $13 billion off the Australian economy. Uh, what's your view about it? Yeah, the, what we've seen over the last sort of few months has been a, uh, a balance of both positive and negative news. Uh, you know, the news on US-China trade... Uh, and on Brexit, you know, gave markets a little bit more certainty around where economies might be heading. But then Australia in particular has been impacted by these two large uncertainties early on in the year, the coronavirus and, and the bushfires. So taking them separately, uh, the bushfires will have a, a negative impact on the economy, no doubt, in the first quarter. Uh, and that's an interruption to tourism. It's an interruption to production, uh, agricultural production, uh, the way people go about their day-to-day lives. So there's a retail impact. So that'll be very much centred in, in the first quarter. Uh, and then what we should see is in subsequent quarters, we see a rebound out of that as the reconstruction in these areas actually is positive for growth. The coronavirus has a bit of a different story as it stands. There's certainly going to be, again, a Q1 impact, uh, and that will be negative for growth. And this is very much centred around around tourism uh, for Australia. And, you know, we realise just how important the Chinese tourist is to the Australian economy. They're the, the largest uh, by number, but they're also very uh, large spenders in the Australian economy. Uh, and so the interruption to that um, trade is going, to, is going to be impactful. And we don't know just how much or for how long that will last because we just haven't seen evidence that the, the coronavirus has, has in any way peaked or there's a solution for that. So there's an interruption to the tourist side and then something that might be a little bit more drawn out as well is the impact that it has on Chinese uh, international students. So one in four uh, students that come to Australia to study are Chinese uh, and there could be delays in their arrival or they might cancel their their overseas tuition because they, they can't travel. Um, and that would also be impactful over the course of 2020. Which would impact the Australia's education industry. Well, that's right. Um, the Australian education system and the universities have become 
very accustomed to high uh, numbers of Chinese students and international students more broadly coming uh, to their facilities and the advantage of that is the international student pays up front and they usually pay more. Uh, a domestic student gets on the what I would call HEX or HELP uh, systems where they've got a deferred payment so that the institutions have become quite reliant on the funding uh, that the international students uh, bring and that might be interrupted so that could be problematic for them. So uh, the issue, of course, with the coronavirus is that uh, they're still working on vaccinations, and uh, but that could take six to 12 months. And uh, so, I mean, the SARS virus lasted 12 months. Uh, so this could carry on for some time. Yeah, like I said earlier, we, we just don't know. It's very, very early. It's, it's getting compared to SARS quite a lot uh, in terms of, you know, the, the potential market and economic impact. I think... You know, what's problematic for Australia is that, you know, SARS was a, an, an issue for Southeast Asia more than, more than uh, sort of Northeast Asia. Um, and Australia is now much more exposed to Northeast Asia than it was uh, back when SARS was around. So, you know, China being our largest trading partner, our la- largest goods trading partner, but also our largest services trading partner, you know, that really could be impactful on the Australian economy over over a number of quarters um, and you know we we sort of remain uh, here waiting for for better news on on the coronavirus and what might happen with it uh, the Chinese authorities are taking pretty dramatic steps but we just don't know how things will unveil well the other issue too is that China is the uh, biggest buyer of our iron ore and uh, uh, they I've read predictions that the Chinese economy could the GDP could drop down to 2%, which would mean they would buy less iron ore, which would affect the iron ore price, and that could have an impact on Australia. Well, I think that's right. That's another avenue by which you know Australia could be impacted. There's a lot of issues around uh, global supply chains and things that are happening around um, the coronavirus that are interrupting these supply chains. And you know we see that there is a real threat to the Chinese economy in particular. But I think... You know, I get the impression from, from seeing how the Chinese authorities respond to threats to economic growth that they do have some policy ammunition up there. They've already started to see that with some of their liquidity operations that they've undertaken over the last, uh, or, or yesterday, Australian time. Um, so I think if, if Chinese growth is materially slowing because of this virus, then they will go back to the things that they know in terms of policy stimulus, and that's usually infrastructure and um, spending in property markets. So that's usually quite good for commodity markets, but I think we'll see the slowdown first, uh, and that could be impactful for a quarter or two on the Australian economy. The other issue, too, is about the budget surplus. I mean, uh, how... According to last MyFO statement, the budget surplus was less. It will be even less now. Do you see still see the budget surplus as a possibility, or has it been vanished? Well, I think the budget surplus um, and the fiscal deficit, I guess, was um, it has been very much flattered by high uh, commodity prices, uh, and that will, you know, probably see budget metrics, you know, at least uh, bringing the budget back into balance. Now, if there's spending on uh, bushfire recovery and and other sort of fiscal stimulus to the economy, you know, I I would suggest that that is a good thing. 
and something that is worth delaying that path back to fiscal surplus for. Um, it just remains to be seen whether the government is willing to do that uh, and we'll find out, I guess, a little bit uh, more about the, the fiscal metrics in May's budget. Um, but what I don't think is going to happen is that the government will step in and stimulate the economy on the basis of, you know, things that are just broadly, you know, pretty, pretty stagnant in the Australian economy. Um, you know, it might... Uh, in isolation, help out in a fiscal sense uh, to reconstruct areas that were damaged by the fires, but I don't think it really wants to step in uh, in terms of you know helping the RBA out, and that's what most economists would actually like it to do, is to take the pressure off the Reserve Bank's uh, monetary policy settings and actually stimulate the economy uh, on a structural basis over a longer period of time. Well, that's interesting you raise the RBA, because the RBA has come out and uh, kept interest rates on hold. And uh, according to this statement, they see the economy tracking along quite well. They don't see any prospect of a negative quarter. Uh, how do you see that? Yeah, well, uh, it was interesting. Uh, the, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, was asked about you know there being a negative quarter of growth in, uh, in Q1 because of the bushfires and, and the coronavirus on top of that. Uh, he wouldn't rule it out. But looking at the Reserve Bank's forecasts uh, that they've highlighted in, in their press release, and we'll get further data on that in their uh, statement on monetary policy, we, we can see that the Reserve Bank, uh, they're either forecasting a, a soft Q1 and strength through the rest of the year, or they're actually looking through some of the impact uh, on the Australian economy. Uh, either way, I think there's, it's a pretty high hurdle for the Reserve Bank to ease policy further. Um, you know, Phil Lowe's said that you know, they'll only take the cash rate down to a quarter of a percent, so they've only got 50 basis points of cuts to come. And I think that they'll need to see material weakness in the Australian economy to spend that 50 basis points. And, and where that would have to come through is in the labour market and the unemployment rate rising, where you know, that would actually be... Uh, moving away from one of their key objectives, which is to get the unemployment rate lower and get wages growth up. So, you know, I think the Reserve Bank still got the glass half full, um, but I think most market economists are suggesting that the Reserve Bank is being a little bit optimistic and will have to spend that 50 basis points uh, over the course of the year if they're going to see the economy even record, you know, two and a quarter percent growth um, by the end of the year. So we could see a 50 basis point reduction by the end of the year, taking it down to 0.25%. That's right. Um, the economist consensus is still that. Uh, I'm uh, sympathetic to that view. Uh, I think the Reserve Bank will try and get away with doing nothing. I don't think it has any appetite to uh, cut rates or doesn't want to cut rates because it sees that on the financial stability side, we've got a housing market, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, that is, is rallying quite hard. Uh, and that you know, brings into question some of the uh, financial stability metrics and credit growth accelerating and Australians having high household debt. So I, I don't think it wants to exacerbate that situation. So it's really going to need to see material weakness in the economy um, to spend that 50 basis points. Um, and like I said, you know, I think it's the unemployment rate is, is the key metric to be looking at um, when we assess just where the Reserve Bank might go on these things. So all eyes will then be on the unemployment rate, which will come out later this month? Yeah, that's right. And we had some, we had some good numbers on the unemployment rate uh, last month. You know, the unemployment rate did tick down to 5.1%. And, you know, the Australian economy does 
uh, still seem to be generating enough jobs. Now, all the lead indicators would tell us that that should soften uh, over the course of 2020 and put upward pressure on the unemployment rate. And I think, you know, the Reserve Bank doesn't have too much tolerance for a rise, you know, to say five and a quarter or five and a half percent uh, on the unemployment rate because it's line in the sand, or what it thinks the Nehru is in, in Australia, is 4.5%. So it sees that it has to get the unemployment rate below 4.5% to get wages growth up. I suspect that it might be even lower than that. You know, it might be closer to 4%, because that's the experience that we've had in the US and the UK and Japan, where unemployment rates have had to get to almost record lows to get any wages growth. Um, so I think you know Australia won't be any different, and we might need to really push it hard. And I, I'm not sure the Reserve Bank can get there alone. Well, Alex Joyner, we'll be watching that with great interest, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, China's National Health Commission said the confirmed cases of novel coronavirus on the mainland had risen above 17,000. The World Health Organization has declared the outbreak to be a public health emergency of international concern with confirmed cases in 24 countries globally, and the rapid spread of the coronavirus pandemic will loom large in the minds of economists in the coming days, as the number of global cases soars and the impact on commerce spreads. While the World Health Organization didn't recommend any restrictions on travel or trade when it declared the outbreak a global health emergency, more than two-thirds of China's economy will remain closed as a result of the virus this week, and disruption could spread further. The Federal Reserve and Bank of England have both indicated they are closely monitoring the pandemic. Bloomberg Economics forecasts the hit to growth will be most severe in China and ripple across the world. And the threat of China's coronavirus outbreak has sparked global fear, but only a modicum of solidarity. A kind of panic appears to be sweeping China and the world. After a 10-day national holiday shadowed by the outbreak, Chinese markets opened on Monday and took a tumble. The Shanghai Composite Index closed nearly 8% lower on Monday evening marking its biggest daily drop in more than four years. The economic jitters posed by the spread of the virus extend far beyond China's borders too. The battle to contain the coronavirus, which has claimed more than 400 lives, may disrupt global supply chains as airlines halt cargo and passenger flights. And with tens of millions of Chinese people quarantined inside their cities and thousands of factories closed, it is already clear the coronavirus is about to sideswipe the global economy. China's coronavirus outbreak cost more than one trillion won, that's $217 billion in losses, to the restaurant, tourism and movie industries in seven days of the Lunar New Year holiday, the economists estimated. Restaurants and retailers recorded sales of more than one trillion yuan in the seven days of the 2019 Lunar New Year's holiday. Just half of that total is expected for the 2020 holiday, estimated Ren Ziping, chief economist and director of the Evergrande think tank. Last year's tit-for-tat trade war between China and the US, which involved both sides slapping import tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods, knocked China's already ailing GDP growth rate down six to 6% in 2019 and helped depress global growth. It fell from 3.6% in 2018 to 3% last year. A Chinese official warned last week that the spread of the virus from its beginnings in Wuhan to about 10,000 victims across the country could add to the damage from the trade war and possibly cause more economic harm harm than the SARS epidemics almost two decades ago. And with eight key regions and two cities in China subject to closure of non-essential business until at least 9th of February, the significance of the epidemic is beyond doubt. Zhang Ming, an economist at the China, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, part of Beijing's State Council, predicted that China's annual growth rate could drop below an annualised 5% in the January to March 2020 quarter. 
Now that would be a sharp slowdown compared with 6% annualised growth in the previous quarter. Goldman Sachs believes the fast-spreading coronavirus will knock about 0.4 percentage points from annualised growth in the US over the first quarter of 2020, as Chinese tourism to the US dips and exports of American goods to China take a hit. Its central forecast is for a partial rebound in US growth in the second quarter, but the risks are skewed towards a larger hit. And Australia's Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says the coronavirus and bushfires will have a significant hit on the economy, putting more pressure on the Morrison government's budget surplus. The Treasurer could not rule out a negative quarter of economic growth and said the fate of the $5 billion surplus forecast in December would be announced on budget night. And the Australian economy faces a coronavirus hit of up to $13 billion in the first half of the year amid warnings from the mining sector that the international health crisis is casting uncertainty over economic outlooks and commodity markets. Australia's hotels, restaurants and tourism operators and some of our most popular attractions face a combined $1 billion loss in revenue for every month the Chinese travel ban remains in force, with industry chiefs calling for a government rescue package to save jobs and businesses. The federal government's blanket ban on Chinese tourists, announced four days after Beijing grounded Chinese group tours to Australia, has already caused an abrupt mass cancellation of bookings on what is traditionally the busiest and most profitable time of the year for the businesses that target the Chinese market. While Tourism Minister Simon Birmingham described the tourism industry as incredibly resilient and predicted it would recover from the twin impact of this summer's bushfires and the coronavirus, Restaurant and Catering Association Chief Executive Wes Lambert said help would be needed to stop businesses going to the wall. And Australia's education industry is facing an $8 billion hit from the travel ban on visitors from China as the sector grapples with how to confront the wider effects of the deadly coronavirus. Education Minister Dan Tian met with Universities Australia on Monday to discuss how to minimise the impact on international education providers. He's also convened a meeting of the Global Reputation Task Force, which warns the market faces an $8 billion hit from the health crisis. The minister established a task force late last month to monitor and advise the federal government on the effects of the bushfire crisis on the sector. The task force's remit now extends to coordinating the government and education sector's response to the coronavirus. Task Force Chair Phil Honeywood said the entry ban on non-citizens who'd been in mainland China was a worst-case scenario for universities, with English-language colleges and schools relying on the arrival of 200,000 Chinese students this year. And the crackdown on the travellers arriving in Australia from China poses a sizable risk to both domestic and international passenger growth, according to Goldman Sachs. The broker says that if the coronavirus outbreak is of similar duration to SARS, four months, then it would imply an 8% to 4% drop for 2020 annualised international and domestic passenger growth, respectively. Goldman Sachs notes Chinese and Hong Kong tourists represented about 15% and 3% of tourist movements in the 2019 financial year, which is equivalent to around 9% of total international passenger movement. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept the official cash rate on hold at 0.75%. The bank had been widely expected to keep rates on hold. The ANZ Australian job ads increased by 3.8% in January 2020, following a 5.7% fall in December 2019. Over the year, job ads were down 11.8% year-on-year. In trend terms, job ads declined 1.2% month-on-month and 14% year-on-year. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index edged up a touch last week, reversing the prior week's decline. It remains well below average. Overall financial conditions were little changed. Current economic conditions gained 2.1%, 
while future economic conditions declined 2.5% last week. And Australian house prices continued to rise in January, with increases spreading beyond the booming Sydney and Melbourne markets. Capital city house prices rose an average of 0.9% in January, while in regional areas they climbed 0.7%. Melbourne had the biggest rise of 1.2%, followed by Sydney's 1.1% increase. CoreLogic's Tim Lawless says there are signs that growth rates are coming down as more homes are listed for sales. The big southeastern cities continued to lead price rises, but all other capitals posted gains, including modest 0.1% increases for the struggling Perth and Darwin markets. However, the 10 capital city price increases were in areas of Sydney and Melbourne, while six of the 10 biggest falls were in Perth and its surrounds. Regional Tasmania had the three strongest areas of price growth outside the capitals, while outback Queensland and WA led regional declines. Overall, CoreLogic's figures show the pace of growth has slowed from peaks during the spring selling season, with capital sitting prices rising 0.9% on average, while regional markets typically posted a 0.7% increase. And building approvals slipped in December, though not by as much as the market feared. Total dwelling approvals dipped 0.2% for the month to 14,752 on a seasonally adjusted basis, outperforming expectations of a 5% decline from a downwardly revised 10.9% surge in November. Approvals for private sector houses slipped 0.1% to 8,486 for December, the Australian Bureau of Statistics said on Monday, while the other dwellings category that includes apartment blocks and townhouses also dropped 0.1% to 6,087. On an annual basis, total building approvals are up 2.7%, though private sector house approvals are still down 7.1% for the 12-month period. And the AIG Construction Index improved marginally in January to 41.3 seasonally adjusted, up from 38.9 in December. Anything below 50 indicates contraction, above 50 represents expansion. The index has been below 50 since September 2018. And fast fashion handbag, jewellery and accessories chain Colette by Colette Heyman is searching for buyers or a cash injection after becoming the latest victim of Australia's worsening retail downturn. Colette, which has 140 stores in Australia and New Zealand and annual sales of $140 million, fell into voluntary administration on Tuesday after running out of cash after Christmas. And law firm Morris Blackburn is looking for a potential second win over over Penfold's owner, Treasury Wine Estates, in a new class action being investigated after last week's surprise profit downgrade, three years after securing a $49 million settlement in a previous case. Morris Blackburn class action's principal, Moran Nage, is handling the latest potential action for possible breaches of share market disclosure laws after a profit dive in the US caused mainly by cheap wine glut wiped out $3 billion from Treasury's share market value last week. Ms. Nage spearheaded a previous class action against Treasury in a long-running case between 2015 and 2017, which eventually ended with a $49 million settlement by the wine group on August 28, 2017, in favour of shareholders. That case also centred on Treasury's US wine business and similar disclosure issues after profits went south in 2013, resulting in the infamous crushing of millions of bottles of cheap wine, which had built up in distributors' warehouses. Morris Blackburn is the second large law firm to investigate a possible class action by shareholders this time round, with Slater and Gordon revealing last week it was testing the appetite of Treasury shareholders to become involved in its own potential class action over the same issue. An Anglo-American will be out of thermal coal within five years, 
While Rio Tinto says the mining industry is facing a make or break moment on sustainability issues. The comments from two of the world's biggest diversified miners comes as BHP studies ways to exit its thermal coal assets in New South Wales and Colombia, and as South32 enters the final stages of selling its South African thermal coal assets. Speaking in South Africa on Tuesday morning, Anglo Chief Executive Mark Kulafani told reporters his company did not have long-term ambitions in thermal coal, the type of coal burned to generate electricity. We're in a transition and we will end up without material thermal coal, he was reported as saying by Bloomberg. You're not talking five years, it'll be earlier than that. Anglo exited its Australian thermal coal mines between 2015 and 17, but continues to mine coking coal for steelmaking in Queensland. Rio exited its last coal mines in 2018, and the company's energy and minerals boss, Bold Batar, told the same event that the pressure on the resources sector to reduce its carbon emissions would only rise in the future. And it's the profit reporting season. Well, bushfires and heatwaves did little to dampen demand for furniture and homewares, with sales at homeware retailer Temple and Webster soaring more than 50% in January to a better-than-expected $74.1 million in the six months ending December 31, according to a trading update on Tuesday. Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation more than doubled to $2.3 million from $1 million, beating market forecasts for about a $1.3 million as sales growth outpaced growth. BWP Trust, which owns a portfolio of mostly Bunnings warehouses as well as other large format retail, said net profit for the six months was $135.6 million, which included a $78.5 million increase in the value of its property. SCA Property Group reported statutory net profit after tax of $90.2 million, up 129.5% on the same period last year. Gage Roads Brewing reported a $0.3 million of EBITDA for the half from $2.1 million and revenue of $19.3 million from $17.5 million. ARB's net profit for the half ended December 31 will fall by 7.4%. The company reported first half net profit of $27.32 million in 2019. The company is scheduled to report its audited half-year results on February the 18th. ALE Property Group, which owns Australia's largest portfolio of freehold pub properties, reported a net profit which after, after, which after tax climbed to $20.5 million from $5.6 million a year ago after revenue lifted to $30.9 million from $30 million. Lenders' mortgage insurer Genworth's profits jumped by almost 60% in 2019, buoyed by recovery in the Sydney and Melbourne housing market. The company, which reports in line with the calendar year, returned statutory net profit after tax of $121.1 million for the full year 2019. This is up from $75.7 million in 2018. And SmartPay said it achieved a 38% increase in quarterly revenue in the three months to December 31, compared with the prior corresponding period, and an 11% increase in the three months to September 30. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Ada Zhao, the Chief Strategy Officer for Platon, the pioneering global privacy-preserving computing network. Located in Hangzhou, Innova City is envisaged to be China's largest blockchain-powered smart city project with an estimated 90,000 citizens expected to occupy the city by its completion in 2025. Platon's blockchain solution will also be used to monitor driving behavioural data to train auto-driving systems, as well as to record and monitor electric vehicle life cycles in order to manage ecological waste efficiently, among other use cases. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, looking at the reporting season and what's happening in the market. 
In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a terrific week and looking forward to bring you Talking Business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 